You're listening to RevOps FM with Justin Norris. Most of our go-to-market motions in B2B tend to have these predatory metaphors associated with them. We talk about capturing inbound leads or hunting down outbound prospects, but community is something different. It's something so valuable that people will go and voluntarily spend hours of their week there, make it a real part of their lives, even pay, in some cases, to be a part of it. So we know from experience that communities are valuable to participants. The question for me is, what does it mean for a company to be community-led? How do businesses derive value from it? What does it mean when the community is the business model? And to help answer these questions, I'm chatting today with Mike Rizzo, the man behind the MoPros community and marketingops.com, as well as the Mopsapalooza conference. Over the past seven years, Mike has forged an incredible network and platform and really become one of the main voices for marketing ops out in the world today. So we're going to dig into all of that. Mike, it is great to finally sit down with you on the show. Hey, I appreciate it, Justin. I would argue I am less of a voice for marketing ops and more of like the megaphone. The mascot. Yeah, I'm fine with that. As long as we get attention for the criticality and importance of this vocation, we can amplify through all the other great work that people are doing. Like, that's a win. Well, I think you certainly are achieving that. And I want to go back to the origin story of Mike Crisso, the Mops superhero. What radioactive spider were you bitten by? No, I mean, I saw as I was looking at your bio prior to the show, reminded me that you've been running the Slack community for seven years which blows my mind, as I think I joined it fairly early on when it was still relatively novel that there were these Slack communities. What led you to do this? Why did you do it? What is motivating you to do this? I would say there wasn't a formal motion in place to say, hey, this is a community. In fact, community wasn't really on the tip of the tongue of most B2B SaaS technology companies, let alone practitioners, when I started the Slack channel. The reason for starting the Slack channel was purely that I was a team of one. And every time I was trying to talk about a problem I was having with some technology or some integration or even a process, I was trying to sort of massage to fit the needs of our business. Most of the team members around me didn't necessarily understand the intricacies of what I was trying to deal with. And so I started this channel on Slack. At the time, I was at a company known as Maven Lake, now known as Cantata. And I think at the time, Slack was new on the scene. And so I was like, oh, this is a free tool. Like, maybe I can find other people, you know, to hang out and talk shop with since we can all download this app. And eventually, I met people as I went to these conferences that were doing what was deemed marketing operations. And I wrote a blog post about it on Medium, positioned it as a place for anyone from any background to come and talk shop in hopes that I would find more friends because the team of one. And it wasn't until 2019 when pre-pandemic, all of a sudden I had five, 10 or so requests to join. Like that medium post that I wrote suddenly got traction and people were reaching out to me on LinkedIn asking for an invite. And so I don't know if it was a Google algorithm thing, more active searches happening, or a need in the market, or some mix of all of those Venn diagram overlaps happening all at once. 
I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, Knack. You know, I love marketing automation software, but let's be honest, the email and landing page builders are usually terrible. You can't make it nice without a developer and marketers are going to find a way to break things or go off brand. You do not have time for that. So Knack is totally different. You set the guidelines and then give your users a building experience that's slick, modern and beautiful. When they're done, everything goes to your map at the push of a button. And don't worry, it supports global teams, approval workflows, it's got your integrations. So head on over to revops.fm forward slash NAC, that's K-N-A-K, and get a special offer just for my listeners. Being in automation, I had to figure out a way to streamline that invite process a little bit. Because I couldn't do one-to-one invitations for five to ten people a week or more. And we took off at that point. I wrote a post about it, and someone that I think many of your listeners would probably know is Sarah Matmara. She saw it and also mentioned it, and then we grew. 110 people a month were joining, and it's been consistency since 2019. And so the fun last part of that story is I actually had boomeranged back to Mavenly and at the time when this was happening. So I'd gone off and done other roles in growth marketing and, and worked at an agency for a minute and uh, ended up back at Mavenlink as this thing was suddenly starting to take off. But the difference this time at Mavenlink was I was in a community. So I was actually brought back specifically to build out a B2B customer community and customer advisory board program. So I was very community minded, which meant that I got to experiment with, well, what works in community of practice versus a customer community? I tried things in both places. Eventually, I was given the opportunity to go spend at least a third of my time on what eventually has become MarketingOps.com, and and now is much more than a third of my time. Is founding a community just a matter of getting the right people in the virtual room and letting them have at it, or do you have to do specific things to cultivate interaction and engagement before it becomes self-sustaining? Yeah, it's a bit like building a product. Right? You have a hypothesis, a problem that needs to be solved, and you go to market and you do user interviews and you say, what is it that you feel is missing from either the thing that I'm endeavoring to build or that I've started to build, what would be better? And you get that feedback and that market validation time and time again, and eventually you land on something that resonates. And over time, word of mouth, ideally for us marketers, is what grows it. And that means that it is a mix of sort of a magic moment. There needs to be a need and a problem to solve in the market. If you've got a product and there's no problem to solve, then it's not going to go anywhere. And then it does have to be the right people using it and getting the right type of value out of the thing that they're doing. And so you think of community like a product in that regard. There's quite a lot that has to. Most of it, though, is just talking to people and asking them for their input. And, and then creating programs that sustain that value. One of the things that is helpful for those perhaps thinking about building a community is first, I, I sort of said it already, but like identifying in our case in marketing ops, there's lots of problems. There's always something to solve, but the actual problem is that you're usually not able to communicate with someone else that is a peer, at least historically speaking. That wasn't the case for lots of us. It's pretty rare even today, I think, to have more than a team of two. You know, our data suggests that there's larger teams out there from our research. And so the real problem that we're solving is elevating the knowledge share and accelerating your ability to grow in your career. When you start thinking about the people 
even though we're talking a lot about technology, especially communities of practice, your focus is about enabling the practice and the people behind that practice, which means you rapidly get into things that people really care about. Salary, roles, tenure, all kinds of things. If you can identify those things and speak to your audience, right? If you're a product person, it's your potential customers, community, it would be potentially your members. You can go build to solve for the pains. For me, I take it for granted now, but you're right. I mean, prior to having these sort of professional communities available to me, I couldn't go and say, hey, has anybody used Tool X and get like really valuable feedback that's not, you know, a paid promotion on G2 that's not been edited or filtered in any way, just real life user feedback immediately. Or do you all like for this use case? Or how do you folks solve this problem? Or, you know, none of that was available. And my usage of communities varies depending on how busy I am and things, but just it's always this hum in the background of my work life. It feels very artless. And from my point of view as a user, it's just like the people are there, there's the channels, it's a room and I'm going to go hang out in it. So it's interesting that there's a lot of thought and craft behind how that comes together. What I've found, and perhaps you found it as well, there are lots of communities. There's RevOps communities, there's another really well-known Mops community, Mops Pros, that other folks spend time in too. Each have their own vibes. Eventually you gravitate towards the energy of one. And it sounds funny to describe a virtual environment as having a type of energy, but it really does. There's different clicks and some are noisier than others. We tend to take as much as we can. We've instrumented rules in our community that as admins, we have a threshold of how many announcements we can ever make in a week. Whether they're self-serving or about an event or, you know, a webinar we're going to host or whatever, we actually have hard and fast rules for our team to follow. And so we know we can't use the at channel or at everyone here capabilities uh, more than just a certain amount of times. We're very cautious about how much activity we're trying to put in and seed into the community because this vocation is very busy. We want to just be there, as you said, humming in the background. And then you might end up finding yourself gravitating towards one that just is popping off all the time. And that's great. There's a little bit more art behind the scenes to the way that we try to moderate and manage the group too. You also have to be cautious. You have to watch. I'm, I don't have any white, bold text in my Slack ever, in any of them that I'm on. Doing something they shouldn't be, they'll get kicked out, right? And so there's a whole piece to that too. You have to have rules and you have to have ways to enforce those rules. And you have to encourage members like yourself to tell us or to tell the person who's the bad actor. That's against the rules. We, I tell all of anyone who ever messages me, somebody did something they shouldn't have done. You are also empowered to say this. If you feel comfortable, you are not required to do so. But if you feel comfortable, you absolutely should take responsibility for making sure this is a safe place for all of us. But otherwise, don't worry about it. I, got it. I want to look a little bit at the focus of the community from a subject point of view, which is marketing operations. And it's this thing that we do. And I want to just dive into your perspective, the function, and maybe a useful foil to start with is comparing marketing operations to sales operations. So I see as sort of the older sibling or older cousin. Where do you view MOPS in terms of its evolution, its maturity, its kind of centrality within the business? Where are we at in terms of marketing operations today? Oh, it's a good question. I just did a post positing that 
admins, for lack of a better description of a role and a function, should actually be considered product managers. Ties in very nicely to this aspect of comparing marketing operations to sales ops. I would agree. I think it's an older cousin or sibling. I think deal desk, some of the technology that's happened inside of the sales ops ecosystem, there's certainly a lot of supporting solutions there, but fundamentally they're pretty focused on one particular aspect of that buyer's journey. And the interesting thing, I've actually shared a graphic about this before as well, is that marketing operations is actually required by nature. Look from the, even before the funnel, the pre-funnel, the awareness building piece, you're supposed to figure out how do you enable tracking, reach, identification, ideally, of your ICP, your buyers, all the way through to the end. And really, there is no end in a lot of businesses. When somebody becomes a customer and is potentially up for renewal, becoming an evangelist, etc., your job in this vocation is often to think about that in the entirety of that underlying pieces, the foundational aspects of the data, the technology, the people and the process that goes into enabling that full funnel view. And that isn't true of any other role operationally anyway. Specifically, for example, and if you think about the RevOps umbrella, if it's truly a roll-up, as we all aspire it to be, of client success ops, sales ops, and marketing sort of underneath this categorical RevOps umbrella, CS operations and sales operations, as I said a moment ago, sales ops is a very specific piece of that funnel. And so is the client success part, tremendously important to the entire business itself and the customer journey and intricately unique and complex to deal with. It doesn't mean that marketing ops is harder. It just means that marketing ops has to look and interact with those two other vocations in ways that those other vocational roles may not actually be interacting with each other or marketing ops. I have yet to interact with a sales ops person. I'm trying to like stop and say, have I ever? And that just could be a symptom of my having not worked in enough organizations, but around somebody in a sales ops function or another operational role that said, hey, tell me about how that you know analytics funnel journey really worked for this particular group of customers. I, I kind of want to know where they started and where they ended up after they ended up going through our sales process. I want to surface that information back to our sales team and talk about where they could go back upstream to go find more customers like them. I have yet to have them ask that question directly to anybody else. Marketing never stops. I mean, that's what hits me from what you're saying. It's from the beginning, potentially through the sales process, depending on the company, but that's not uncommon. And certainly with customer marketing, it carries on forever, potentially, until they unsubscribe. From lead capture to unsubscribe, we're with you all the way. And yeah, that is unique. You're right. It's cyclical. It's ongoing. So that part's unique, not to be morbid, but if we thought with the climate of layoffs happening here, if you put the proverbial gun to the head of the CEO and said, you can get rid of marketing ops, you can get rid of sales ops, who are you going to get rid of? They choose to keep sales ops. And why, assuming that the intuitive perspective is correct there, why is MOPS still perhaps not perceived as central to the business, despite having a much broader scope, as you just pointed out? Yeah, I would say it is a symptom of just like human nature. You're in sales, you're associated to sales, sales means sales. And you're closer to the dollar 
closer to earning that paycheck from our customer. And so, you know, it makes sense that sales needs help. Sales always needs help. They're always asking for more things. And well, sales ops does those things, at least some of them. So I'm going to keep that function. So it's really a reflection of the relative priority of marketing versus sales in some ways. I think it is in some ways. Because sales is considered more important than marketing, then their ops function is also to some extent considered more important. I think often that can be the case. I mean, sales is a very difficult job and it takes some very unique skills to be able to close deals no matter what industry you're in. It's relationship building and understanding the products and the needs and the pains of the buyers and addressing those and selling that service or product. And, you know, marketing needs to understand, you know, go back to the P's, right? pricing and positioning the product and all these things, right? And we have to figure out how to identify the audiences and sales does a bit of that too, but it just feels more nebulous. And sometimes, I mean, that's why there's the ongoing debate about attribution, right? Like nobody's ever going to figure it out. Quick hint there, everybody, just stick to your version of attribution and you've done well. You've done it. You nailed it. I also find, like I look at a lot of different job descriptions just to like understand what's going on in the market. It's just something that interests me. And there's a good number of VP RevOps or Senior Director of RevOps type roles out there. They usually are just referring to sales ops still. Uh, I think that word's become increasingly corrupted. The roles themselves, the way they're described, sometimes I read them, I'm like, what's the sales leader doing? Because it feels like it's describing all the ops stuff and then a lot of the sales stuff too, like sales strategy, go-to-market strategy, those high-level things. And then I compare and A almost never see a VP of marketing ops roles. There's like half a dozen of them, you know, in the world, maybe more, but still not that many. And B, there are still, those roles are still very technically oriented. They're not saying like, we want you to work with the CMO on marketing strategy. Sometimes they do, they can see blended roles, but even then the strategy is not, it's like the, the operational strategy rather than like, no, we really mean like work on the marketing strategy. So is there an extent to which Maybe it's just the nature of marketing and sales and how they are different, but the extent to which marketing ops is less close to the heartbeat of strategy than sales ops is. Fascinating that we're still seeing that trend. There's been an evolution over the last decade plus, right, in the category of the traditionally named marketing operations role. And I think we're reaching a new tipping point. There's been a, a sort of a well-established norm for what does it mean to do marketing operations, more or less, right? We had the pillars introduced, Daryl Alfonso introduced additional pillars and, and a restructuring and a way to think about that at Mossapalooza last year. I think that's a natural evolution of where this is headed. And we, as a community of practitioners, we're all in our tenure of doing marketing operations and go-to-market systems. We're reaching for lack of a better way to validate someone's role in market is sadly, <laughs> age is a factor. It's a human thing. For whatever reason, you see someone who's younger in their years of life and often and incorrectly often, you assume that they don't have experience. And that's sometimes true. And sometimes they've just got really great innovations that they could bring to the table. And so you exercise caution. But just to get back to the point of time and role, and our age, literal age, that's favoring this move towards discussions that are more strategically focused. And I think as a community, we're doing a nice job of saying, 
hey, we should be involved at the earliest possible stage of your go-to-market ideas, we can talk about what is the art of the possible and the tools that we currently have in place. How do we actually implement a go-to-market? And I think we're doing a nice job of getting closer to those conversations, but we have to continue to educate the executives that are building these businesses and the board members and all those that are involved in some of these strategic decisions, the vocation and that it's much less an administration and much more management of a go-to-market system. It is a product in and of itself. You built a SaaS company today and you hire product managers. They are interviewing your users, trying to understand the pains, understanding whether or not a potential solution and feature should be introduced to the market or not. And they're eventually working and project managing with the developers to bring that product. Your marketing operations team is doing the exact same thing to enable your business to reach new markets or stay within a market and enrich that experience. Their job is to figure out how to enable your sellers, your marketers, and your leadership team to have that visibility and help you execute. And then they have to project manage the implementation of all that, whether that's with service providers or internal teams or what have you. They have to identify all of those things and it's running a product. When you start thinking about it strategically in that way, it introduces a new concept for executives to say, ah, I need a technologist. I need a strategist to help me figure out how to use all of the tools, the 11,000 plus tools that are out there. Which ones do I use? I think the product management metaphor approach is not even a metaphor. I think it's a reality. It's spot on. I want to think a little bit about back to the idea of being community led. So there's two different models of this, right? There's like creating a community as a, a business with things surrounding it, whether it's a paid community or a free community with paid add-ons like marketing ops or like pavilion, or there's a few others out there. You see them all the time. People get a lot of value out of them. So there's like that approach where the community is the product. And then there's what maybe is interesting to lots of people, but the idea of being community led where the community sort of is the go to market motion for a software product or maybe a consulting business or something like at my company, 360 Learning, we have a community. So it's a part of our go to market. I'm curious, what is your perspective on what it means to be community led? Are there companies that are doing this literally as their sole go to market? Is it a supporting factor? When is it appropriate? When is it not? What should somebody think about if they're like, we should start a community? Like, should they? What to consider? Yeah, things to consider. Let me make a couple of recommendations for material that I learned from that I found incredibly helpful. There's an organization known as Feverbee, and it's a consultant out in the space of community building. Tons of research, really great resource to start absorbing some content from. Gentleman by the name of Jono Bacon, that's J-O-N-O. He wrote a book called People Power, also an excellent resource to think about how to learn and consider communities. And then there's a community for community builders. There's a few of them, but the first one is CMX. They are now owned by a platform known as Bevy, so they were acquired a while. Popularized a framework called Spaces, and it helps you sort of orient yourself around the type of community. In certain cases, it's like a support community, for example, would be what the S stands for. Support community is perhaps driven by some KPIs related to reducing caseloads and tickets and support time because you're building a knowledge base. And so the programs that you instrument there would be about knowledge forums and how do you get people to contribute to the forum? 
And what are the systems and the rewards and the badging and the gamification and the model around creating a better support environment that alleviates the burden of your own internal support staff? Would you consider the Marketo community to kind of be in that niche? I would consider it to fall closer to a support-oriented community, for sure. At scale, right, these enterprises can't provide, you know, one-to-one support indefinitely, right? Uh, And so you have to have forums that are sort of knowledge-based oriented. That means you have to try to figure out ways to make that really easy for folks to discover, utilize, and, and ideally contribute to. And so when you're thinking about the idea, should I build community? Look at the spaces model. Consider first what type of community it is that you're trying to build. And then identify whether or not you as a brand should be tied to it very directly. Like a good example of being tied pretty darn directly is the inbound movement. There was a period of time where inbound.org was a thing. It was very clearly owned by HubSpot. Like no one ever shied away from the fact that this is a HubSpot and they leaned into that. They popularized this motion. They created a community and an ecosystem for it, and they owned it wholly. Perhaps one that's like less clear, uh, Wizards of Ops is a great community. Most people don't realize that's actually run by a software company because they do such a great job of keeping those two entities very separate. And they do that with great intention. They don't want you to feel like you're joining their community to suddenly be sold their products because <laughs> their community is a community of practice focused on this operational sort of rev ops, marketing ops, conglomeration, wizards of ops is the name of the thing. And they've got product came later anyway. And so they're like, hey, that's not what this is for. And and I think anytime you start to tiptoe back and forth across those lines by accident, you can very quickly lose the trust of your community. So the intentionality with which you build that really matters right from the get-go and staying very clear. So that your buyer, whether that's your customer in a support-oriented community, et cetera, or your community member, is very clear about the fact that I'm here, I trust this type of relationship, and you're not going to like pull the rug out from underneath me. How do you thread that needle, though, of let's take Wizard of Ops, which I think Sonar is the company or the product behind it. You could argue that on the one hand, the separation of church and state is good for the community. It feels like a very vibrant, independent, almost grassroots place, which is awesome. Keep them two separate. All of a sudden you say, where is the benefit to Sonar of continuing to do that outside of just the altruistic benefit of providing that space? There's a huge difference between like using the community as shooting fish in a barrel. Like I think we all know that should be a no for a real community, that you shouldn't just use it to like identify sales signals and sick your BDRs on them. But still even just to have the brand present, to be sponsored by, to at least affiliate some of those positive sentiments back with the parent brand or the parent product. How do people thread that needle? It's very difficult. It should be easy. What becomes difficult is the practicality of running a business. Like There's a very practical question that needs to be answered, which is we're spending money and people's time, resources, which time is money. And managing this asset to the brand, you know, much like a lot of brand marketing has intangible value, but is critically important to your organization. It's a little hard to draw the line between does that community derive additional dollars? And so the solutioning, the business level, when you're looking at if I was, you know, an investor and 
for example, like Sonar, they have clearly taken really good leadership internally and they've got great, what I would imagine sounds like are great partners and investors that believe in their motion. There's a chance that you build this thing and suddenly someone at the board level is going, why are we spending $300,000 a year to manage this thing? You know, what is it doing for us? And the answer to that question is not going to be <laughs> very black and white. It's not going to be clear, right? And, uh, and I think threading that needle is one that has to be done with very like delicate hands. It is create programs that perhaps enable your organization to be reflected positively in different discussions. I can tell you just from my experience when I was at Mavenly, customer community. It was a support-oriented community. Actually rolled into the customer success team. Marketing very quickly, and really leadership in general was, well, how do we cross-sell and upsell in here? I was like, this isn't working. That's what this is for. There's a totally different motion for this if we want to do that, right? Let's be intentional. Either we're going to create an environment that's all about productizing our product, or we're going to create a support environment. But a hack, perhaps, an idea, bring and the value of the product to light is to bring in your partners, your experts, and say, for the next 60 days, we're going to prop you up as the foremost expert of Maven. All you have to do is be available to answer the questions that are being posted to the forum, and you just have to answer them. It's great. FaceTime for you in front of our customers. We are going to tee them up with potential questions that you might be able to solve. You might even be able to do a few posts yourself to show them the art of the possible, Inevitably, you're creating an environment that reflects positively on your products. It gives your partner a chance to earn some business and ultimately, hopefully, drives additional adoption of the features that perhaps the customers weren't using. And that's being helpful. And that's a support-oriented thing. I think there's ways around it, and you can create programs that don't feel icky. I think the support and product-related community, it's easier because there's a really clear line of sight. There's gamification. Like, I've come up through the Marketo community and getting those badges, getting to the top of those leaderboards was a significant aspiration in the early days. Or you have someone like Sanford Whiteman with his 25,000, probably closer to 30,000 posts or whatever it is. With a community of practice, I mean, that's the motion that we're taking right now. So we've developed a community of practice for learning development and the personas that use our product, but it's for all of use our product, don't use our product. And it is a difficult thing because the way I'm thinking about it, and tell me if you think this is accurate, is you almost want to feel like the brand is the host of the party and they're there in the background and they're welcoming you, they're ensuring you have a good time, but it's not in your face and it's certainly not selling to you. And you want to feel like, almost like the community is a form of nurturing, like the idea of email nurturing, that you may not use our product today, you may not be ready to use our product today, but if you can develop a relationship and trust with me, be open to using your product when that time comes when I need to reconsider. And uh, just through becoming their partner on their journey professionally, whatever software you use, now achieving that, executing that well is hard. That's sort of like my personal thought about it. Is that realistic as, as a way of thinking about a community practice that's sponsored by a vendor? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's a nice way to create that relationship and think about that relationship with the brand. The question I think naturally for those that are paying attention in the community itself, is there an apprehension to mentioning any other competitive product inside? If they don't feel comfortable enough to mention a competitive product, neither here nor there, maybe that's a good thing. A community of practice in its truest form would be that what would happen if someone from a competing product line 
said, hey, we want to get involved. Is there stuff we could do to get? Naturally, you know, 360 might say, this is ours. Like, you can't run a webinar with us. That's okay, because you control the experience. Doesn't mean that others can't also talk about it, right? Do you encourage it? Do you create programs to say, hey, let's talk about some of these other challenges that you're having? The further you head in the direction of, I actually am very well aware of the fact that there's lots of you using other products that are not ours, and we're just going to lean into that and allow that and support it, you can create even more trust and, and perhaps learn, right, on the, well, how do we address those pain points in the rest of our messaging up market? But that is scary for people, even if that's the plan. Speaking of the proverbial board member sticking their nose into place, like, oh, I was in our community and they're talking about our competitors, shut it down. Like, you know, those more old school mindsets, I think, can easily emerge in reaction to those things. My message there is it's going to happen anyway. You said it at the top of this, right? You said, hey, there's this, I take it for granted that I can go and ask about the usage of a technology or recommendation of something to solve my needs. Yeah, you can do that. In fact, they could probably do that too, because now they know 10 other people that they've seen in the chat, and they're just going to go off into the LinkedIn ether. You can't stop it. You might as well be able to watch it happen. So you might as well watch and observe silently and in fact support and just say, hey, it's okay. You're not our buyer today. Maybe you will be in the future, but you'll remember us as creating an environment that supports you. If you've got clear goals, right, as a business, you want to grow 30% year over year. That means that the vast majority of the people that are engaging with your brand and looking at it, they're not in market to buy. You have to know that. They're not going to buy. They're going to talk about your other products. And so why not just be the supporting ecosystem that allows that to happen and assume that you're going to try to go capture a percentage of the market that's in market, facilitating that experience. You're not going to get 100% of it. So just be there. Makes perfect sense to me, but I think it's an evolution for a lot of people. I want to talk about Mopsapalooza. Because you did this crazy thing this year. You hosted a, a conference. It was really crazy. It's really crazy. And I, I, so I want to give you my perspective. I wasn't able to go, unfortunately, so I wasn't there. But you're coming this year. I hope to, so that I can give the keynote. Absolutely. We're announcing it. No, I'm just, I'm just teasing. <laughs> uh, but I watched it unfold on LinkedIn and heard the feedback. And it was like this amazing thing was happening. And I remember chatting with you shortly before it was happening, and I saw uh, what you were putting into it. It wasn't like this billion-dollar company doing this thing with 20 events people, and it's no big deal. They've all got it in the budget. You were doing this thing, like, out on a limb, really making it happen. And to see the community embrace it, that was what struck me about it at the time, was that it wasn't just an event. It really was a community-led event in the sense that, like, all these people actually came together to make it a thing and seemed to feel like a sense of ownership around it. And the feedback I got from all the people who were there was that it was really like that on the floor. So why did you do this crazy thing? What were your greatest fears? And I know this is 20 questions in one, but like, how did you feel seeing this thing unfold? First and foremost, the why. So I always had aspired to create something larger than our summer camp experience. Well, always is relative to the time in which we started these events, <laughs> I guess. So. Like my dream was to host a big conference. In fact, I had done demand generation, marketing operations, and event marketing while at Mavenlink, my first go. So I was the marketing ops and events guy. And uh, I will tell you, hosting events to me and getting things done is like chores. 
it's like a really painful thing that I don't necessarily want to be responsible for when I was doing it for these other companies. Ordering the internet and the trash and the carpet and the, all the things. There are people that love that stuff, that checklist. That is not for me. And the reason is the community asked for it. We hosted summer camp. People love these 50 person, two and a half day experiences. And we were really worried about whether or not that energy, that vibe, that intimacy would break at scale. Fun fact, it didn't. We'll touch on that in a second. But while we were hosting these things, they said, hey, Adobe really dominated the marketing ops community space and conversation with Marketo Summit. And there's like very few speaking sessions for us anymore. We want to showcase our knowledge and our experience. And I said, that's all great. We can't do this just for Marketo. It's not why marketingops.com exists. Pull a conference together, the agnostic of the platform, and we're going to start talking about some of the practices and stuff beyond. So they literally asked for it, and and I endeavored to try to figure out how to do that. And I said, while you and I were talking prior to the event and to many others, if anybody ever wants to reach out and see what it takes to put these things on, I would be so pleased to show you because it's tremendous. Volm over at RevOps Co-op, another great community, is hosting an event this year in May. He's experiencing that now and guiding him as much as I possibly can on the things that I journeyed through in the last year. I always said I should write a book on how to throw a million dollar event before you ever do a million dollars in revenue. Cause like there was no world in which we had done money and it could not have done it if the community wasn't asking for it, if they weren't hungry for sharing their knowledge, if they didn't want to actually make it happen. You know, we asked everybody to chip in. They had to pay their way, right? To be there. It's speakers included, right? Hey, you might not have paid the same price that others paid to join in the event because you contributed your time and your energy and your content. We said, hey, we've got costs, we've got to cover these things. And so that means you have to have the mindset of, I'm invested in this community and I want to make it happen. And so when you did get to the floor, it was incredible to go from what I had experienced with thrice over with about 50 people in a room for two and a half days to now 330 people across these four rooms, 120 plus speakers or what have you. The amount of folks that came up and said, this is amazing. It was so inspiring. And it was definitely the hardest thing that I've ever endeavored to try to do. I didn't do it by myself. While we might not have had a team of like budget aligned and 20 to help us do it, we definitely had a production team that was tremendous. The speakers said they were even better to work with than some of the other big events they've spoken at, names of which events, but they were just so complimentary of our team. And we're really excited to try to do it again this year. But yeah, it's crazy. Going into it was the biggest learning curve I've ever had in my careers. It looks stressful, but it was truly impressive. Also, just the way that people really wanted to support it, were talking about it, felt invested in it, even perhaps a bit beyond like the Marketo Summit always was. People really got into it. Like, you know, there's the wall of tweets and posts and, you know, there's always that chatter and stream around it, but it just, yeah, seeing people take ownership of this, that there was the hunger for it. It was really cool. I was impressed. I remember noting on this at the time and even thinking like, I have to have Mike on it at some point and talk about how we pull this thing off because just feeling so surrounded by it, you know, that's a real achievement when you can kind of take over LinkedIn, or at least the corner of little corner of LinkedIn that I inhabit in that way. I don't see much. The silos they create on LinkedIn or their algorithm does a very good job niching us down and for better or worse, I guess. I appreciate 
words of encouragement and the feedback. It is a tremendous effort to just to get, I always say, uh, when we work with other brands and we work with speakers, we say, hey, the faster you can get to the part where you talk about how the cookie's made, the sooner this community will actually pay attention because we don't want the fluff. And so that sort of no BS point to make is it costs us about a million dollars. We did not run it profitably. That is exactly what you would expect from an event, right? We're not in the business of hosting events for profits. We are in the business of creating great content and community and elevating this vocation. If we come out in the black or break even, that is fantastic. We did take a loan. For those that ever want to know more, like, yeah, took a hundred thousand dollar plus loan. I opened two other credit cards. I looked at taking a lien on my house because it's a significant amount of money. But this comes back, Mike, to, I didn't want to go there, but since you've mentioned it, the why, like, why are you doing this? Like, you know what I mean? Like the the level of commitment, there are easier ways to reach fame and fortune. And yet you are so committed to this project to put yourself out in that way. Do you just love marketing operations? Do you just love bringing people together? Like, I do. I love the category. I love the people that I've met in the last handful of years where this has grown. I mean, yourself included, right? Some of the best people I've gotten to know. And that wouldn't have happened if any of this wasn't happening. And just to echo back to what I was talking about with Matt, who's hosting his event, he just posted last night, yesterday, someone sent him an email and said they got a job because of the community, right? And that happens all the time in our community too. And it's the best feeling in the world. I know that we're helping without knowing literally, like without getting emails from folks or DMs constantly, or even when it happens rarely, I know that's happening. And that's what matters from the business side of this. There's an opportunity here. We're generating revenue. I can finally pay myself something this year, I think. Yeah, we're trying to treat it more like a business and it's doing quite well from a year over year growth perspective. If you want to put the business hat on, it's been a double, double, triple, triple. That's what we did in terms of revenue. And those first few years when you're, if you go from a dollar to, to two, 100% growth. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> yeah. We've done really well as an organization. When you isolate the conference, it did not run profitably. However, we did operate the business in the black for the very first time, just barely. But the reality is that I still haven't paid myself. And yes, it is a passion. So that means in truth, a long road ahead of us. But I think there's an opportunity here for us to create the vocational platform of the future for this critical role. As a community, as many of the leaders in our community are already aware, we're going to create that certification program that's bought into by the majority, ideally, cross our fingers, knock on wood, whatever you say, it is bought into by the majority of the community. So this is truly what it means to be a marketing operations. When you establish that, salaries go up. A company goes, I need one of those. We've identified through conversation year after year with the community that there's a need and there's something that we should try to go fix together. I think to my last question, which is just the future outlook for marketing operations, two to three years from now, 2026, 2027, where is MOPS standing at that point in the world? Where are we as a discipline? What's changed from your point of view? Hopefully some more VP of marketing ops titles. (laughs) I would say more senior leader, potentially executive leaders, a shared understanding broadly about the the importance, the role as a product go-to-market systems manager and strategy function, a certification program that establishes credibility, and ideally a couple hundred thousand 
folks that hold that certification program. Well, we'll check in and see. I hope that's the case. Thank you, Mike, for all you do. And fun learning about this. Appreciate the community and the experiences that you've built. And look forward to speaking with you again. Yeah, thank you, Justin. I really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. I want to invite you over to the RevOps FM Substack community, where you can sign up to get rough transcripts, show notes, longer form articles, and other bonus content. Just head over to revops.fm slash subscribe to get free access. I'd also love to know what you thought of the episode and to hear suggestions for topics you want to learn about. Feel free to leave a comment on Substack or send me an email at justin at revops.fm. Thanks for listening.